1: Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm Robert Guest, The Economist's foreign editor, and this week we're asking, as the West faces relative decline, what should the new world order look like? The Economist is marking 175 years since our first issue with a new initiative, Open Future. Over the next few months, we'll be leading a global debate in print, online, and of course on radio, to remake the case for free markets and open societies in the 21st century. My guest today argues that far from being endangered, these liberal ideas are having unprecedented but unacknowledged success. Kishore Mabubani has been a keen observer of the shifting sands of geopolitics for nearly 50 years. As a diplomat for his native Singapore for over three decades, he served in Cambodia, Malaysia and the United States. And he was president of the UN Security Council. He's unafraid of asking provocative questions in his new book, Has the West Lost It?, He calls modestly for the introduction of a new world order, in which the fall of the West doesn't herald a new dark age, but a new utopia. Kishore Mabubani, welcome to The Economist Asks. Pleasure to be here. Kishore, has the West lost it? Has it lost what?
0: Uh, I would say the West has not lost it yet, but it is going to do so. If it continues on autopilot, going in the same direction when world history has turned a corner. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, very simple. From the year one to the year 1820, the two largest economies of the world were always those of China and India. It's only in the last 200 years that Europe took off and North America took off. So the past 200 years of world history have been a major historical aberration. Now, all aberrations come to a natural end The West now has got to wake up and say, hey, this is a very different world from the 19th and 20th centuries. I now have to learn to live and work with the rest of the world in a cooperative fashion without making demands on them, without telling them, I'm going to impose sanctions on you if you don't behave yourself. You could do that when you had uh, 40 to 50 percent. 60% 60% of the world economy, but that's shrinking.
1: So are you talking about relative decline here, what Farid Zakaria calls the rise of the rest, or absolute decline?
0: Oh, definitely relative decline. And just to give you one statistic, uh, in the year 1980, in purchasing power parity terms, United States' share of the global GNP was 25%. China's share was 2.2%, less than 10% that of the United States. By 2017, China's share of the global GNP had grown bigger. But of course, the American economy had not shrunk. The American economy had grown.
1: But the Chinese economy had grown much faster. I think you quote George Orwell as saying that uh, uh, one of the greatest struggles in life is to see what's in front of one's nose. Uh, What do you think the West is failing to notice here?
0: I think the West has fundamentally failed to notice that the rest of the world has woken up. The West should be celebrating now Because in the end of the day, future historians will see clearly that the Western project to civilise the world has succeeded. You've shared your best practices, you know, your modes of reasoning, your science and technology, your cultural confidence, your modes of good governance. You've shared it with the rest of the world. The rest has absorbed it. The human condition has never been better as it is today. This, the moment of great triumph for the West when it should be celebrating,
1: instead, as you know, it is in a deep funk. The spread of reason, as, as a number of authors have argued, has allowed a huge improvement in uh, not only material living standards, but longevity uh, and, and even social relations in the world. The world is more peaceful than it was before. Do you think it's right to think of this as a spread of Western ideas or a spread of merely ideas that are simply universal?
0: I, Here, yeah, I think we must give the West credit. Frankly, if the West had not made the great leaps through the Renaissance, through the Enlightenment, they gave you something very simple. Hygiene. Why do you think less babies are dying? Because mothers wash their hands. And it's, it's something very simple because you know there's such a thing as germs. I myself, you know, I grew up in Singapore as a child when Singapore's per capita income was about the same as Ghana's, $500, and I was put in a special feeding program at the age of six because I was technically undernourished, okay? So you look at where I came from as a child in Singapore, and now Singapore's per capita income is higher than that of the United
1: Kingdom. (laughs) Why? We absorb Western best practices. So why do you think the West is in such a funk at the moment? Because it it certainly is. The West misunderstood
0: two critical turning points. The first critical point was the end of the Cold War. And Francis Fukuyama famously wrote the essay, The End of History, and he got it dead wrong. He asked the West to fall asleep and relax at a time when China and India were waking up precisely at that time, 1990-1991. Then, in 2001, when 9-11 happened, all the great Western intellectual giants thought, hey, that's the big thing of the year. But that wasn't the big thing of the year. What was the big thing of the year was China's admission to WTO. And when 800 million new Chinese workers joined the global capitalist system, there is massive creative destruction. And so there were job losses. This could have been anticipated. So everything that has happened could have been anticipated. So the goal of my book is to say, hey, wake up. There are even bigger changes coming.
1: Start adapting now. So when you say the West went to sleep, what are the things that it should have done but didn't?
0: Well, I think for a start, at the end of the Cold War, there was a tremendous amount of hubris and triumphalism in the West. And I faced that condescension big time. That triumphalism was a huge mistake. And every time you try to intervene in another major civilization, there will be a blowback. That will be very painful. So be careful. Do not do in the 21st century what you could do effortlessly in the 19th century.
1: You're talking about forceful interventions here rather than selling Every, people stuff.
0: I'm also talking of ideological intervention. For example, when Xi Jinping announced that there'd be no more term limits on his presidency, gosh, the chorus of disapproval in the West was amazing. Yet, did you ask yourself, what is it that the Chinese one consider the possibility that from the perspective of Chinese history... The what keeps China going through good times is having a strong emperor. And if you you think that China can overnight convert and become a democracy, then clearly that's a grand illusion.
1: Nonetheless, there was previously an idea that uh, the Chinese Communist Party had a relatively meritocratic way of alternating leaders. And for it to be strongly hinted that uh, Xi Jinping wishes to remain there potentially forever, well, I mean, generally leaders don't get better in their sort of third or fourth decade in office. But the Chinese, by the way,
0: still have the most meritocratic political system in the world in terms of the selection uh, of leaders, joining the higher ranks of the Chinese Communist Party is probably more difficult than becoming a professor in Harvard in terms of the competition. And Xi Jinping himself is actually the result of a meritocratic system because he had to struggle incredibly hard uh, to where he got today. And you, you are right, he can become a bad emperor. But if he becomes a good emperor, he's going to lead China even more forcefully and powerfully in the right direction.
1: Well, yes, if he becomes a good emperor, that would, of course, be good. I mean, the worry is that it's very difficult for him to be thrown out if he's not good, which is generally the advantage that that democracy has. There's a lot of feeling in the West and also um, among people who observe the state of uh, liberal democracy around the world. That certainly, since the financial crisis of 2008, that you see places like Turkey and Hungary, um, and even you know, looking to parts of Africa like Zambia and parts of Latin America like Nicaragua, that um, there's an authoritarian sort of populist surge in the world. Does this worry you?
0: Uh, I'm I'm happy to uh, give you the good news that there is no authoritarian surge. Okay. Yes, there are stronger and stronger leaders emerging in some specific countries. But the world as a whole, let's say you take the three most populous societies uh, of Asia, China, India, Indonesia. Guess what? Two out of the three are democratic. And what's similar in all three cases is that all three societies used to have feudal societies, have transformed themselves, and all three now have governments who believe they are accountable to the people. Now that's a massive revolution in thinking that has happened not just in Asia, but in Africa, in Latin America, and elsewhere. There will be exceptions, but the, the fact that the people today are so much more conscious of their, of their rights and of their ability to change, that's a far more fundamental transformation.
1: Is there not also a feeling that since Xi Jinping came to power uh, in China uh, and possibly since Narendra Modi uh, came to power uh, in India? I mean, in China, you've seen a, a greater centralization of power. You've seen the chap in charge say that he potentially could remain president forever. And you've seen much greater extension of government surveillance over individual citizens giving the, the, the state enormous power over, over individual people. And, you know, in, in India, much less serious, but there's been more of a feeling of Hindu nationalism that, that, that tends to exclude the minorities, particularly the Muslims in that country. Do, do you not see any troubling developments there?
0: I first went to China in 1980. And when I went to China, people in China could not choose what to wear. They all wore Maoist suits. Yes, They could not choose where to live, where to work. What to read, zero choices, zero. And I would say, if you're talking about the government, my God, the government of Mao Zedong was omnipresent and determined every feature of their lives. Today, the population at large has experienced the greatest explosion of personal freedom ever seen in Chinese history in 4,000 years. And amazingly enough, this is the most, for me, this is the most critical statistic. Because, as you know, the Soviet Union allowed zero Soviet citizens to travel as tourists overseas. Zero. Hundred and twenty million people leave China freely every year to travel overseas. More importantly, hundred and twenty million Chinese return to China freely. They do. And I, I have lived in a majority Chinese society for I'm now six for sixty nine years of my life. I have never seen this kind of pride among the Chinese, as I have seen today. The sense of self-esteem, the sense of confidence. I mean, so it's a very different Chinese population. So what you see, in a sense, as a glass half empty is a glass that the Chinese see as a glass that is three-quarter full. Now, India is, of course, completely different. And India will never have any kind of dictatorship or authoritarian rule of the kind that China can have. And as you know, Indira Gandhi tried. She tried and it didn't, and didn't work so and, well, did and, it? And, and failed, precisely. That's the point. And this is why the Asian story is so fascinating. China is succeeding because of its government. India is succeeding despite its government. And one Indian scholar, Pratap Banu Mehta, who runs the most successful private university in India, said to me in private, He said, The difference within China and India is that in China you have a closed society with an open mind. In India you have an open society with a closed mind. So they both have challenges. They haven't got there yet. But clearly they have come a long way and a future historian looking back on the West passing judgment on China and India will scratch his or her head and say, excuse me, these two countries are just waking up and marching confidently into the future and the West is saying, where are you going?
1: You say that, but I mean, it's not inconsistent to say that what's going on in, in China represents an enormous improvement, uh, you know, in material quality of life and, and, and indeed in sort of freedom over, over uh, a long period of time, but still to be concerned about some of the more recent changes in, in how the government deals with the individual.
0: It's fair to be critical, but it is not fair to impose on China a Western ideological straitjacket. And to say that the only path to history is the path that the West has taken, because I guarantee you this, the Chinese are going to take their own path. I mean, China has lifted 800 million people out of absolute poverty. And today, it's conceivable that the, the, the people at the bottom in China may feel a greater sense of hope than maybe the bottom 10% in America.
1: What sort of advice do you, do you give to the West as to how to approach geopolitics differently?
0: I think it's important for the West, especially Europe and America, to maybe have a reboot exercise in geopolitics. Because geopolitics is about geography. And so the challenges that you face in the long term are very different. America's number one challenge, and that's the subject of my next book, uh, is China. Very clearly, the US, will, the U.S. will become obsessed with China in the next 10, 20, 30 years and just see it essentially in one way or another as a zero-sum game with China becoming number one and America becoming number two. And as you know, Graham Allison written a book called Destined for War, which I disagree with. They're not destined for war. But that, that'll be the American obsession. If I look at Europe's geography, I think Europe's biggest challenge is not China, but Africa. Africa's population in 1950 was half that of Europe. Now it's about double. By 2100, it'll be 10 times the size of Europe. So if Africa doesn't develop, that's going to be a massive problem at Europe's doorstep. And paradoxically, the country that's actually investing a lot in Africa is China. So every road, every port, every industry that China builds in Africa is actually helping to stem the flow of people into Europe. So there is actually, there could be some degree of convergence of geopolitical interests between Europe and China, but that's something that's inconceivable today. Um,
1: How much damage do you think Donald Trump is doing to America's standing in the world?
0: Well, I see Donald Trump as a passing phenomenon. When I was in Davos this year, the most impressive speaker was Macron. I can imagine a figure like Macron emerging uh, in America. I don't know who it will be. So I can see America swinging back to the center. So I don't see Donald Trump as the problem. A bigger problem is that the American liberal intelligentsia doesn't understand the world and hasn't prepared the American population to deal with this new world. And that I see as an even bigger problem because that creates a unique, kind of uh, isolationism.
1: And you think that moving towards a less interventionist foreign policy is the most important thing? I mean, a lot of Americans would say that what was going on at home was more important, that the difficulties of getting, uh, you know, the education system working, getting people uh, prepared for the the jobs of the future, and that that would be the main determinant of uh, American success and power over the next century or so.
0: Absolutely. I completely agree that it should focus on its domestic problems, poverty, and so on and so forth. But then you've got to rebalance what you do with the rest of the world. But the good news is this. Since the Western project has succeeded, the rest of the world is happy to cooperate with the United States in Europe in building strong, global, multilateral institutions. Exhibit A, climate change agreement in Paris. Every problem you have in the world go for a multilateral solution and make sure that the rest of the world, which makes up 88% of the world's population, are part of the solution.
1: And they'll join you. So if only you had an American president who believed in the uh, Western-devised rule-based order. But Bill Clinton gave a speech in Yale in
0: 2003, where he gave his fellow Americans some brilliant advice. He said, listen, if America is going to be number one forever, fine, let's keep on doing what we're doing. But If you can conceive of a world where America is no longer number one, then surely it is in America's interest to create a rules-based world. He gave the speech 15 years ago, and not a single major American figure in office has had the courage to uh, follow his path and to say, hey, let's prepare for a world where America is becoming number two and therefore go for a more rules-based order.
1: Kishore Mabubani, thank you very much. Thank you. And what do you think? Should Western leaders acknowledge that the West is going to be number two in the future and adapt accordingly? Write to us at radio at economist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio using the hashtag OpenFuture. And you can find out more about our anniversary initiative by going to www.economist.com forward slash OpenFuture. I'm Robert Guest. In London...